Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Troubadour Talks. Today, we have a special episode, and we're going to be doing the Iliad. I have Molly Johnson, who is a part of the Literary Canon Club. I've talked about the club before. It's where we read through the literary canon from Homer all the way down to something in the 20th century. I haven't decided where we stop, we'll stop necessarily, but um, probably before Rand, actually, probably early. Early 1900s is where we'll probably stop, or even late 19th century. So uh, Molly was just part of a group that finished the two months of reading and discussing and going through and having conversations via the forum of the Iliad, the first book in the canon. This is the Iliad by Homer, written in the 8th century BC, about the Trojan War in the 11th century BC. And this has been one of the foundational pieces of literature in all of Western literature. And so I thought I would have Molly um, and a few others were going to talk about aspects of the book that they liked and anything that is enjoyable. And, you know, particularly with you, Molly, you know, you um, have read the Iliad, you said more than once before this, or was it just one other time with the Iliad? I read it in high school and then a couple other times uh, when some newer translations came out. Um, that was, you know, a decade later and then this recent time. I've probably read it four times, maybe five total. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and, and each time was, I think, a different translation. That's always good with the Iliad. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, there's so, I mean, I think there are hundreds and hundreds of translations at this point. Yeah. Just, Throughout the eras and then in different languages, if you know, not even just English, but just so many in different languages. Some of the most famous poets of all time have done, you know, like Alexander Pope has a famous one, of course, um, on first looking into Chapman. I always have to say that to remember it was uh, what George Chapman's that Kelly or Keats is talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's a well transverse tr- translated book for a reason. Right. There's a reason why um, people read and love this work. And I think it's more than just tradition, although a lot of people might think it's just, oh, it's tradition. It was the first, but it's been around for a long time. So you've read it a couple of times. We just went through the literary canon group discussion. Was there in this reading, which was we did E.V. Reuse, R.I.E.U., his translation, which was recommended by Leonard Peikoff, um, was there any unique things that came out of this one for you, out of this translation? Yes. Um, I thought it was a really good place for a first read through and also for kind of a comparative read through where mm. you already know the story really well. And the reason was it really highlighted the plot for me because previously a lot of what I've read is, is more prose um, or no poetic uh, translations and uh the first one i read was prose and then i read some other poetic ones and i found that i focused a lot more on the poetry of the poetic ones and kind of lost sight of what was happening and who was related to who or a lot of the (laughs) interesting uh relationships and the the repetition of different situations with the same with different characters um and this time through i was much more uh noticing sort of um well like there's a a scene where 
Odysseus is suddenly surrounded and he gets afraid in battle. He he doesn't know how he's going to get out of it. Oh, is this the night attack? And uh, no, I think it's after that. Okay. Uh, he's trying to uh, he's trying to protect Diomedes, who's wounded. Mm, okay. And they're kind of surround. They're almost surrounded, and he wonders, "Should I run away? Yeah. Or should I stay here? I'm going to really get in trouble if I stay here because they're about to surround me." And so he has this moment where even he is afraid, and he's wondering if I'm going to survive this. And then there's a later scene where Hector goes through the same thing with Achilles. Mm. And I would not have noticed that little pairing, that sort of foreshadowing of, of that situation in a, in a, in a different translation where I'm worried more about, Oh, what a pretty way to turn the phrase and not. That does kind of overtake it a lot. Yeah. Where it's, you are focused on the plot was really central in this translation. And so I think that's particularly good for a new reader of it to grasp who are all these people with all these funny names and all these uh, places they're referring to. There's a lot to take in. And so if there's a way to just give it a bare bones outline, I think this is a good translation for that. And then it was also helpful for me because I had forgotten a lot of the plot. And Mm -hmm. so it was a way of refreshing my memory, having not read it in a long time. Um, And then one thing they have in this translation that I especially appreciated was the little outline at the beginning of each chapter, which at first annoyed me because I thought, well, there are all these spoilers and it tells you everything that's going to happen. Why would I want to read the chapter now? But I found that um, when I, if I was reading it when I was tired, it was a good way to to check. <laughs> oh yeah, did I did I get all those events? Or yeah. Did I really pay enough attention to to see that all those things happened? And it was also a way to find uh, a scene that I liked quickly when I was reviewing the whole book to um, kind of recall those favorites. Yeah. So it was helpful to have that outline, even though. It's a little hand-holding, but <laughs> I didn't mind it. I, I kind yeah. of needed my hand to be helpful. Yeah, I mean, like, so. there's there's always the question of how challenging does it have to be? You know, part of it is you want to just enjoy it. And yeah. there is, like, this, you know, I feel this way, too, when you honestly, like, when I read something where it's like, even if it, I read something really challenging, which is valuable, and it's like, oh, yeah, I was able to do it. And so I'm kind of proud of, and I was like, yeah, I read this version, right? I, I actually read right. the Pope version. Yeah, version. I suffered through this. And it's like, haha, I got, I was able to do that. And it's like, at the end right. of the day, you know, you want to get the story and you want to under, it's a wonderful, amazing, powerful story, I think. And there's a reason why so many people, you know, died to preserve it. Like they spent their life rewriting it and writing it. You know, this is before the printing press. You had to write it by hand. This survives Mm -hmm. because thousands and thousands of people uh, meticulously saved this work among all, there was a lot of work that is lost of this era. And so there's something very special just, just in that. I think there's a value in just understanding why so many people you know, and whether you agree with that, you know, why, why then, mm-hmm. I mean, I happen to agree that it was, it's that important. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I told it, but the point is the, the idea of the, there is a sense where you just want to get the story, which I think when we're doing, we did the literary canon 
that's why that was Leonard Peikoff's argument for your first read through. And I thought right. that was a good point. Uh, my first read through made me cry. Now I was very young, but it made me cry because I didn't understand anything. And um, yeah, I just didn't understand anything. You crying for like, yeah, I wasn't cr- like, I was, I was crying <laughs> through the whole thing Aww. because well, the story, like uh, I've told the story on the show several times actually, but I was very young. I wasn't good at anything in school. Like, I was good at baseball, but I was in school. I just wasn't good at anything. I was like, you know, 10 years old, except my teacher said I had an above average reading comprehension. I didn't know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, I didn't really know what that what value was, I guess, but right. I, I thought, well, so I'm good at reading books. So what's the greatest book was my next conclusion. Uh, and I heard, yeah. um, so one of the teachers said, I think, um, uh, the Iliad. So I don't think they knew what they were saying when, when I asked them that or what they were doing, but I told my dad to go get it. And we just went to the Barnes and Noble. We just picked one off. Aww. He had no idea. And then, so I read it. I don't even know what version this was. This was 10 years old. I made myself read through every word of it and I didn't understand a word of it. Uh, I mean, I don't, yeah. So, and, but it did like instill in me the desire to understand it later. So I've read many versions. I've taken courses on it. Um, I've done a lot to try to understand it. And I think, you know, it's overall, it's also, it gave me the kind of like ability to push through a work, even when I don't understand which is one of the things mm-hmm. we talked about in the literary canon club is there you're not always going to understand everything. And so pushing through is a valuable, just push through. Like a lot of people will just stop. I don't get it. Throw my hands up and I'm done. One of the things we talked about is kind of the value of pushing through and then being able to see the whole and then coming back to it. Um, yeah. Well, there, there are definitely things I had to push through even this time through <laughs> mm. because what there, in are particular? I, there are lots of parts I don't like and mm. there are lots of aspects yeah. of it. We talked about this. What, what's your least and favorite? My least favorite is the catalog of ships because it's oh. just boring. I mean, <laughs> that's the, every, yeah, the yeah. genealogy <laughs> of, of every ship and every place. And I tried to like it. I tried to find some thing to enjoy or to imagine myself no, being one of these people and hearing, <laughs> hearing my name or my people mentioned. But no, I, I really can't enjoy that list. It's just a list. Yeah. And then another thing I, I don't skim enjoy that, at this point. that made it more clear what parts I did enjoy was I I did not enjoy the the killings, which yeah. is most of it. Every time someone yeah. dies, there's I, hundreds I read of it, deaths. I forced myself to read through it and even to visualize the spear going through his throat and coming out the other side. And what would it be like if it went through your palate? And the, I mean, I visualized all that. Like I did my work, but that was not the fun part for me. Um, now we discussed that I, in particular. But it made more clear what the fun part was. Yeah. So. So what are I, the fun? I, I what's the fun part? By process of elimination, figure out what the good parts were for me. Well, so hold on. So um, I want to make sure we're, we're picking out these parts. Yeah. So we had a discussion in the Literary Canon uh, Club group. Um, I presented an argument. Did that at all help in terms of the death? Did that change at all your view of it? So the thing I was talking about was that if you actually oh, read yeah. those, there's the death is not a big prevalent as prevalent as you think. It's actually the building of the oh, life see. of each one. Right. And yeah. so every yeah, time I, someone dies, every time, without exception, you get, you get the, you get like, whether yeah. it's one sentence 
or a whole page or two, depending on the right. the value of the character, their their chaos yeah. in a sense, their glory, and right. So and, that is, I think, the reason that's for that. Still a list, but that's still a list of, and here's this guy, and he's he's gonna die too, and here's where he's from. It's really just a catalog. It's okay. a more extended catalog, but I'll tell you the good parts. Okay, let's hear the good parts. Okay, the good parts were every time there was a character who was alone, that was like a little paragraph separated from the rest of the battle. And all those little moments Hmm. where there's a character alone or in an intimate situation with one other person, yeah, those little intimate moments were the ones where I, those were what I remembered. And then going through the book, I found several of them and, they matched up with my favorite moments. They were they were the things that that I really remembered the best. So do you have an example? And I remember details of them. Um, yeah. So the first one was when Achilles is he retreats to his his hut after okay. the argument with Agamemnon. Yeah. And and he prays to his mother to help him, and mm-hmm. she comes, and they have. The conversation about what are we going to do now? He's taken my honor. That's the whole thing. I yeah. made this choice, and and then she goes to Zeus to ask him to yeah favor so the that Trojans. Moment of mother and son, but but also before that moment, there's Achilles just by himself, just devastated, and he's mm. he's still angry, but he's also he's got this whole complex set of feelings that he's just overwhelmed by because the whole purpose of his life, his, his glory, his honor has been just ripped away from him mm-hmm. by this man. And so it's really short, but it's this really important moment. And to me, those little moments are the most exciting part. It's not, hmm. Oh, someone died or someone's spear went through accurately. It's the, the feeling being really strong and having it just wash over the character. Hmm. And it only happens when they're alone. Yeah. So whenever there's a whole bunch of people around, there's a crowd in the battle. and So it's not versions like where, where Sarpedon is talking to one of the other Trojans about why they have, why they're the front of the spear. Like that's, those conversations are not, as interesting, it's okay. It's these little moments. No, it's when they're alone. Like huh. so, Achilles is is the first one, rightly so. And then um, the second one, I think, is Helen. Okay, you get this little tiny window into Helen's thoughts and feelings mm. because it's all about her. Like she made this choice, and or maybe she didn't choose. And here she is in Troy. Is she? Does she regret it? Does does she miss Menelaus? And it turns out she does. And that's explicitly stated that she has these feelings of remorse and she remembers her old life in Sparta and her child and her husband. And she sees all her Greek friends and she weeps for that. And she weeps at her choice. So there there's this little window into her feelings about what's happening Mm -hmm. that we don't see anywhere else in the epic that how she feels about this because this whole war is about her. I mean, 
Well, kind like and yeah, the, that's it's kind and of caused by her. Actually. Yeah, and and um, so it is caused by her in about her, in the like in the the myth, the, tr- the, in the myth of it, and I think Homer yeah. does mention it. But um, yeah, I mean, this is so interesting. So I because for me, the thing that I love so much about this is the um, you know the the memento mori type concept of meditating on death and the value of that. And the value of life in the relationship with the fact that we're going to die and coming to terms with mortality, which is something that all humans have to do. And it's something mm-hmm. in our society we don't do today as much. Like we put the dead, you know, and dying people in hospice. We don't look at them. We don't think about them. And then when it's our right. turn, we freak out. Right. And there's, um, uh, which I'm sure I, I hope, I hope, I, I always tell myself, I hope I'll, you know, get to a point where I'll be satisfied with my life. And I won't do that, but yeah. it's, but it's something that I think about. It. And I think this book, you know, with all the death, which I really, you know, I love war stories. I love band of brothers and the Pacific because Stop it's, <laughs> no, I know. And, and I, I always do wonder if there is a gender aspect to that. Um, I've yeah, noticed so. men tend to love these types of civil war stories and, and, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Like, I don't know the answer cause we now have you know, a mixed army, uh, mixed gender army. Although I still think like 95% of combat vets or higher are men, but anyway, it's, it's an interesting question. So I've never been in war. So why am I interested in it? Right? Like why are a lot of guys who are not in wars who have never been in a war fascinated by it? It's something that I think about. Um, I don't know if it's just a cultural thing, you know, it's passed down. My dad was in Vietnam. And so I think about like, how would I deal with this kind of situation? Um, you know, and, and I think the Iliad helps me, but of course the Iliad does more than that. It helps me think about mortality as such and the value of un- like, cause the dilemma that Achilles has in a certain sense is this dilemma of his two fates and should he live a simple life, right. And, and die an old man and, and not be remembered or excuse me, should he go out um, and win glory, but he'll die young and be remembered forever, which is true, by the way, because he's still in the, we're still talking about Achilles, right? And so right. there's, there's a, um, you know, it's an interesting dilemma about like, what should we, like, how do we think about death as framing our life? And I, I think death does frame our life in, or in a certain sense, if we think about it as, well, it, things are going to end, so we should, you know, act in a way that we're going to accomplish things in that end versus like if we had right. the mentality that we're going to live forever, because this is one thing that the, the well, immortals don't have any nice. values, right? They that's don't what I care think is nice much. about the, the uh, shields and, and yeah, the, the shields thing. shield is yeah. that it sums up that whole circle of what is a life and what is it Absolutely. that Achilles gave up to have this glory. He gave up marriage and dancing and weddings and, and uh, family. Well, the shield has everything, including the cosmos. And, yeah, but, so it but has, the shield is is primarily about the human world and the human activities. Like it has many many scenes of what what do people do in their lives. And yeah, the it, I mean, it, it does it, have that. It's a kind of an animated version of of a of a painting. There's all these little. Yeah. animations that that happen on the shield and well there's I, like farming was, 
right? There's, there's like yeah, I said, there's wedding, yeah, there's farming. There's, now there's also the sacking of a city and the burning of a city. Yeah. So there's war. Right. In and it. that's just part of life. That's part of life. Exactly. Yeah. The whole but, aspect of life, hundred percent. But I thought it was interesting that, that he made this shield for, for Achilles and he's only going to get to use it once. He's going to, he's about to die. Yeah. But what do you think in, is the significance of in that? that battle? Yeah. Well, I think, well, there's a, there's a lot to it. I mean, he makes it for Thetis because she's kind to him. And Hephaestus is this, this sort of shrunken, lame yeah. God that, God that of the forge. doesn't get any love from anybody and, and get no respect doesn't love him he doesn't get any respect. <laughs> no respect he has to he has to make robots to do his work for him there's no one working with him he's so he's alone in his forge with his robots and and yet he takes all this pride in making this shield that's just for one instant of, of glory it's it's not something achilles is going to use for his whole life it's just yeah. for that final that final raid. Well, we and, know what happens after the the Iliad too with his and armor. And then they argue over it. After the, the Iliad's the over, the shield is this symbol. Of, the shield and all of his armor. You know, who's gonna Who's, who's gonna, gonna get be it? Top yeah. doggy now. <laughs> who's, and there's a big fight over that. As good as yeah. Achilles after after he's dead, and yeah. so Ajax and Odysseus both fight want him. that. Both symbol. want it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're willing to fight one another for it. So. Now, what do you think about the idea that Achilles getting that shield after Patroclus has died and, you know, he doesn't eat, right? Uh, but but um, Athena, I think it's Athena, infuses ambrosia into him just like yeah. she does with Hector uh, uh, to keep right. him fresh. And, and you yeah. know, so even though he's being abused, his body is staying fresh. And she's doing the same thing with Achilles in a sense. Mm-hmm. And Achilles, but Achilles is not eating human food and he has this shield that's, in, um, you know, just imagine seeing this man with a shield with all of existence on it coming mm-hmm. at you, right? There's a kind of superhumanness to him in that moment. And I just, right. you know, that, that scene after the shield, um, or when he re-enters the battle, finally, I was just wondering what you thought of all that. Well, no wonder Hector's afraid when he finally yeah. gets cornered. By yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's got. That's terrifying. Field. It's clearly, it clearly the gods are on his side, and, and mm. Hector's not going to be able to fight yeah. against this. And yeah. everyone else has gone back behind the walls. <laughs> he's alone out there. Well, he yeah, right. he was tricked. So right. he was told right. he thought he was, he thought, he was he thought there, there was some people yeah. there. Yeah. But then some, yeah. so that was another gone. one of the yeah. scenes that I, that I found oh, when he was by himself. That, oh, he's, he's basically alone. I mean, yeah. Achilles is there threatening him, but, but he's realizing there's no one else around and that overwhelming feeling of fear. So it, it was the, the um, sort of, cause I'm an introvert that, that mm. everything that's really cool that happens is, is when the characters are alone and they're feeling a very strong feeling. So to me, that was, those were the good parts. Um, yeah. So that was another instance of, well, you, uh, and then Achilles and Priam obviously is, a, is another intimate. It's very intimate. Yeah. Um, admiring one another, seeing each other as people. Priam, um, the king of Troy. Yeah. Yeah. 
and he, he yeah. comes to beg for his son's body. Yeah. Basically. And he, you know, he, this, that famous yeah. son, uh, line, you know, I'm the first man to kiss the hands of the man who slayed my uh, son. Right. And not only that, but like, we know at this point that Achilles has killed most of his 50 sons himself. Um, like, yeah. So it's not just uh, Hector, although he did kill Hector, his, his the most important and the strongest of his sons, but he slaughtered like, 30 of them. Uh, right. I mean, it's and including killing, th- that one young one. Hector, he, he makes it possible to take over the entire city and burn it down. So he's, yeah, they are very vulnerable. Yeah. He is the one who's responsible for destroying his whole yeah. empire. His whole, his line. His it becomes, it seems to become inevitable at that point, right? Like they know they now lost the great Hector. Hector is a great character. Um, I know when a lot of people read it, he tends to be the, their favorite for reasons mm-hmm. you, you said, I think that's an important thing is you see, um, Achilles comes across much more superhuman and mm-hmm. he is, I mean, he, he is the, the, um, the son of a goddess, although there are other characters that are sons of gods and goddesses, of course, but he is the only character who knows his two fates. Most mm-hmm. people don't know. And Hector doesn't know. And I like the way you said, you know, he hesitates or he, you know, he, he, when he's running away, he thinks that he can do it. And he, then he doesn't think he could do it. And he, he runs away when he's like, I can do this. And then he sees Achilles and then he runs, right? Like he has that. And he has that throughout the whole story. Like he, you know, when he's meeting with his wife, um, you know, early on in the book, she, he, he expresses this kind of thing of, you know, um, we're going to be fine. Oh, and you know, I'm probably going to die. So let's get you an escape route. Like he has that kind of dichotomy where it's like, yeah, I could do this. We're going to do this, but I'm probably going to die actually. Just in case. You know, just in case. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. This is too much. Yeah. Like, yeah. So it's, he has a back and forth that Achilles doesn't really have that back and forth. He knows, which is a really yeah. weird thing to think about. Like I, I always try to wrap my head around the idea of knowing, like going into a war and knowing you're either going to live or die, right? And and that is such. But that's always true. In a no, way. you like you're uncertain when you're you go either to... going to live or die. No, no, it but you don't really know it. <laughs> no, no, but like if you if you read the account of combat vets, like the thing they struggle with the the most is the uncertainty of whether they're going to die. Someone like just randomly gets shot right next to them. Why that person? Yeah. Why not me? Right? Like it's it seems so random and a lot of them deal with it by accepting that they're just dead already. In a sense, there's a kind of pre-death to a lot of combat people, especially when they're in these world war two situations. Um, You know, if you hear stories of combat vets from like Pelilu um, in Japan, I mean, it's one of the most brutal battles and it's the same kind of thing where it's like, they don't know, but it's just so weird to think about like they, if they knew without certain, with, with certainty, oh yeah, so I'm going to choose to, um, you know, love a woman and just be a normal man. So, you know, I'm going to fight this battle. It's not going to be a big deal. And I'm going to go home. Like they, they don't know that. Right. And that's Achilles has that choice. He could just like fight a battle. say, oh, I'm done. I'm going to go home now. And then he's good. Mm-hmm. Or he can like fight full force ahead and he knows he's going to die, but he'll live forever. Like that's so that's so unusual, obviously. Like humans don't have that awareness. 
It's very uncertain in battle. I don't know. I I kind of disagree with you. I I think that in a way he is an expression of the choice that men, usually men, even today, make to fight. That by, mm. by choosing to fight, they are choosing I might die. They could choose. To well, but not he doesn't die. choose. I might die. He will die. There's a difference there. Well, I don't. Uh, Hector has the more normal. I might die yeah. question. That's why his character. But Hector, Hector too seems to know that he will die. He, no, I think he well, teeters. But he, both ways, like he's like, I could do this. Nah, I can't do this. I'm gonna die. He. That's the normal way to think but, about this. I think there are several places, at least in this translation, that imply that Hector is pretty certain. That no, there are. He He's is fated to die. Like I, he. So I, th- I think we're saying he the same thing. Think that they can, they can win. Yeah, I think we're, we're saying that. I think we're saying okay. similar things. My, They're still I, he, choosing to fight, even though they know they won't okay. survive it. Well, so we'll we only have a couple more minutes, so we'll just leave it like this. So you have. Yeah. Um, I'll sum up my view of this, and then we can wrap up. I think okay. he does do that. And then I'll let you have another, the final word. I think he does do that um, where he thinks we can do this. We're gonna, you know, this can happen. And then there are times when he thinks I, we're going to die. We're going to lose. This isn't going to work that those, he has both of those in there. The fact that they're both in there shows the kind of conflict that he has within him about his uncertainty, which is the normal way. And you see this with many other warriors where they think, I can do this and then they don't do it or I can do this and then they can't do it. Right. And even the way it's described in their deaths, like they were, you know, they, they didn't know that they woke up to die this morning and blah, 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 blah. Like, mm-hmm. There's a lot of that where the, the most characters are very uncertain of their fate, or at least that, you know, they're not sure that they're going to die. Um, it's very unusual to know that you're, you know, to know with certainty, uh, like I could die tomorrow. There's no way that I can know yes or no. Achilles knows, and that is very stressed about how unusual the fact that he has two fates. Um, but that's my final word. So I'll, you know, um, I'll let you have your final word, and then we'll wrap up our thoughts. And um, that's it. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring it back to kind of our whole conversation, which is I, I don't see this as a book about death or war, but as more about relishing the things that happened before death the the life and the the feelings yeah. that that war brings up the fear and the remorse and the and the love feelings that hector has for andromache when he's saying goodbye that all those patroclus human feelings are are in and patroclus yeah. he's angry at achilles yeah he, he comes back to the tent what are you doing still here they're they're losing and you're still <laughs> mad about this <laughs> and, <laughs> you're being ridiculous he, i agree he, yeah and and so all those emotions come out in those little vignettes those little paragraphs where the characters are alone and that is set against this backdrop of death and fighting and killing and they're what homer pulls out to sort of save and say Look at this too. This is also part of war. These these yep. feelings are also part of this. Scene. I totally agree. 
Yeah. I think that's, that's, I, I, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. That this is what, you know, when you, when you're thinking about death, it's all these things, like it's really life. That's why the immortals yeah. are so important as a contrast because they are the right. deathless ones. They don't have those values. Even with their own kids, they kind of only like them as a plaything, right? Right. Versus right. you're a hundred percent right. And I, I think that's a great way to wrap it up is that this is, you know, when you have this war, it, it tells you these, or it, it provides it or it emphasizes, I should say, these life values and the, the values mm-hmm. of emotions and loving a brother, a son, a city, a wife, uh, a father, and so on and so forth. And your own life, as Achilles does, right? Like right. His, the value of his own life, that this is a valuable thing. So awesome. Well, thank you. Any last, any last words, um, Molly, before we sign off? Uh, no, thanks for putting this together. This yeah. uh, club has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's yeah. been fun. And thanks for, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, it's been yeah. awesome. Thanks for inviting me to talk. And Troubadour Talks, is, hopefully we'll have you back on again. This, will, okay. this was fun. For the Odyssey, <laughs> maybe we'll do this again. I know, I, you, I know you prefer the Odyssey, so <laughs> hopefully we'll, we can uh, talk about that one. Great. Well, thank okay, you so good. much. And yeah, thanks, Kirk. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Well, I guess there's actually other guests coming on. So hold on one second. (laughs) All right. Continuing with the Iliad, I have on Marco Romero. We actually went to high school together and he is now a member of the Literary Canon Club and a real estate megastar in San Antonio. Right. (laughs) Uh, So not a literature person, although you, you are a pretty good reader, but you're not you know, you don't study literature as a thing. You just read because you would like reading literature, right? Right. I've always been focused more on the nonfiction, particularly yeah. self-help realm. But yeah, especially recently, we've been focusing more on the literary side. And Iliad has been part of that journey. So out of curiosity, why? Why recently literature? Why did you take the leap into <laughs> the Iliad? Um, well, I'm just curious, like, because, you, you know... I've said this to you before, and I've I've said this on the show a couple of times. Like, one of my passions, although it's very challenging, is trying to find ways for successful business owners, you know, entrepreneurs, engineers, people who don't normally you categorize as the what is it the the right brain or left brain creative, you know, uh, literary types which I think is garbage. I think it's not a true dichotomy that, you know, between left and right and that, that business people can't be creative. But so one of my passions is always trying to get them to not see themselves that way and to read more literature and how that can enhance their life. So I'm curious about why you are in, in, interested in it, especially now more than ever. Well, um, I've always been a fan of good stories and um, I've read a, a number of different things in the past, though I, I think for me particularly, um, reading is an activity that I have limited time to pursue. So like I mentioned in the past, I, I really tried to focus on more the nonfiction, the self-help, sales, business, real estate type topics. Um, because I felt that if I weren't wasn't reading in that realm, it was kind of a missed opportunity uh, mm. to gain a skill, gain more knowledge, learn something, implement a new strategy, things of that nature. And fiction kind of felt like almost like just 
uh, watching a movie or something of that nature where I, I could be more, yeah, uh, where it could be more, I could be more productive, mm-hmm. which in retrospect is, a, is has elements of truth, but ha- is also a failed uh, way of um, approaching it. So recently for me, Hillary and I, Hillary's my wife, uh, we've been in real estate quite some time now in, in San Antonio and being a part of of the real estate realm has always been a grand pursuit of mine and uh, something I've been working on for many, many years. And uh, when COVID hit in this past year, 2020, it was a situation where Hillary and I had to kind of adjust on how we were working, what we were focusing on, what our day-to-day looked like, what we wanted our workday to look like how we wanted to build our future life. And by going through this transition and and really taking a step back in a lot of ways uh, caused me to take some time for reflection and try to get a a handle and a reassessment of what were my true priorities, such as the priority of my wife, the priority of my children, the priority of happiness in general. And not the so much go, 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 trying to get to the next the next tier, the next level in business. And so through that new lens, I have tried to focus on more key elements of like myself and my mentality. So gratefulness, patience, things of that nature. And something that really came up in my mind, right now I'm in my 30s. Um, but something that came up in my mind was more long-term thinking, like Mm -hmm. looking at my life, uh, in a whole, in a whole perspective, like what's something that I could be doing now that will have positive impact on me, not just three years from now, five years from now, but 10, 15, 30 years from now. And by trying to incorporate more of that as a focus of how I think about things, is uh, changed how I've been trying to live life, which in- encapsulates business and again my wife and children and things of that nature. So with this perspective, that's how I started to look at reading. It was like, okay, how rather than trying to do a lot of these things in the short term for short term gains, maybe this is one skill or whatever. Uh, what are things that are going to help me have more view on um, the longevity of life and uh, the compound effect of of that? And so when you started to propose the literary club, how what's a better way to look for a long-term future than looking long-term into the past? And so that's what really um, kind of got my attention and got me a little excited was the fact that you were going so far back, not just like hundreds of years, but thousands of years back in literary history (laughs) to, um, look at what others have written. And, um, you know, like I mentioned, I'm trying to focus more on these key elements that are like more at the pinnacle of, um, Priorities, life priorities. You know, I mentioned gratitude and, and priorities um, such as that. Well, I like with what you've been talking about with these literary um, literary arts that we're progressing through and going through, starting with the Iliad. 
that time itself is a major filter on these literary works and there's a reason they've lasted um mm. for so long so that it's especially in the age that we live now where we're so inundated with so much information you know i could go to a bookstore now and there's hundreds and thousands and millions of books to pick from but how can i with my limited time and limited life how can i pick ones of the highest quality well <clears throat> You can take other people's recommendations. That's a way to filter to a higher quality level. But again, time itself, these literary works that have stood the test of time have kind of filtered out to the the highest quality uh, for one reason or another. So one that relate that's related, though, right? Because it's the Iliad is time tested in that people have spent their lives preserving it, which is in itself a recommendation. Right. Exactly. So it's like, but it's That's not just people today in America or someone in Russia recommending it, but it's someone in, you know, classical Greece, in Rome, uh, in medieval times, you know, in medieval Italy, in Renaissance, France, so on and so forth. And not just one person, but tens of thousands, and not just tens of thousands of normal people, but tens of thousands of the greatest minds to ever walk this earth. So it's like the greatest, what I like about the Literary Canon Club is it's recommendations from the greatest humans, period, ever, to walk this earth. And that's a pretty good recommendation. Yeah, it's like almost the ultimate filter. Because like you said, it it, um, transcends like country barriers, cultural barriers in some ways. Um, And I mean, these things were written before many countries even existed. And so, well, definitely, uh, yeah. Before, like all the countries that are today, these, the like Iliad precedes even Greece. It wasn't Greece when the Iliad was written. But so let's hop into the Iliad and what that's about, because I think what you said is great and it's an important lesson. Um, you know, I like what you're talking about with time, because one thing I've thought about is, you know, one of the arguments that people say is they don't have time to read the great works. And I think you don't have time not to read them because of your, what you're saying is that you you're only here for one lifetime and you need that perspective of a whole 80, 90, hundred year, you know, of your life. You need to put that perspective, you know, in front of you as quick as, as condensed as possible. And that's what these, that's what great literature does. That's the essence of it is it condenses your life so you can visualize it and then you can contemplate you know, a 10 year, like the values that are most important and the things that are most important to, pers- um, to, to focus on. And the Iliad is the first one and it's a, in Western literature. It's a great one. And we, in the club just finished it recently. So, um, first and starting with it. So, you know, you've talked about why you were interested in literature, these timeless values, essentially. So what, um, in the the Homer's Iliad, we don't really live in that kind of world anymore, the warrior ethos. So I'm curious what you got out of the Iliad in particular that you think might be interesting for a timeless value. I wonder if there's anything or if there's something else possibly going on with reading it. Does that make sense what I'm asking, what I'm saying? Uh, to an extent, yeah. Um like what? What are the key elements? Yeah, I mean, because we talked about like fame and glory. You know, there's Achilles and his uh, abnegation from the fighting, and then he's drawn in by Patroclus dying his death, and so on and so forth. 
you know, there's the gods and their relationship. There's mortality and immortality. We talked to, you know, that, that's all in the Iliad. So, you know, when we're talking about timeless values, what is it in the Iliad that touched you in a timeless way, if anything? Um, I, I think the, the element that sticks out the most to me is um, the part that you highlighted, which has been, you know, um, discussed a lot through the literary realm, is the, the two fates with oh, yeah. Achilles. Um, that has that. What are the two fates? So people who haven't read it yet. Sure. Well, Achilles, the most famed, most badass warrior on the <laughs> Greek side. Um, he's the son of a goddess, and he's basically given two potential fates that he's told early on. So he's very aware of what his potential fates are. One is a heroic early death, uh, famed in battle and glory that becomes uh, infamous and is, allows him to have immortal legacy into the future. So Mm -hmm. not only will he be renowned, um, for his death, but throughout history, he will be basically forever remembered for his it's, early It's a mortal form of immortality, right? This is yes. the only immortality available to immortals is to be talked about after your death and forever, to be remembered forever, right? Yeah, through the realms of history. Through the realms of history, yeah. Yeah, and so that's one option. The other potential fate for him is, and that means dying not, young. We have to emphasize that. Yes, that means he's going to die young if he chooses if he has that fate. Okay, sorry, the other one, which is like roughly in the twenties, sounds like for him. Yeah, I mean, I don't, we, they don't say his name, but if he leaves as a young man, fourteen, fifteen, he might be twenty four, twenty five. Um, yeah, by the time this is happening, yeah, so but he's a young like man. a kind of like an Alexander the Great scenario, maybe a little yeah. bit earlier than that. Yeah, he was, I think, about 33, 34 when he died. But yeah, same, same. And Alexander the Great, I don't know if you know this, he thought of himself as Achilles essentially reincarnated. No. Like, he actually no, thought of himself that way. That yeah, makes he, sense, he supposedly slept with the Iliad under his, his pillow. Although, oh, I don't, really? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how that would have worked because there's 24 papyrus scrolls. Did he have, like, all these papyrus scrolls? There weren't books like this, like a, like a book book. Yeah. It was papyrus scrolls. So, like, what was he doing? I don't know. Uh, but I think the the image of it that he loved it so much, um, you know, was was part of it. But anyway, so in the, what's the second fate? Uh, so the second fate is instead Achilles will have a long life, a um, a long life that is void of that heroic death, um, the whole battle going out in battle scenario. He will basically live out his days on his land, kind of um, not really exciting in that aspect, but he'll be (laughs) with his family and he'll live his long life, eventually die. And when he dies, basically no one will remember him. When he dies, he he dies. And so those are the really the two potential routes he can go with his life. And uh, it's kind of interesting because – I've actually, you know, upon 
reading this and kind of learning about it and kind of mulling it over, not only for myself, but then additionally in like how Achilles struggled um, with his own um, fork uh, that he was dealing with. I've actually posed the question to a few different people. Oh, interesting. Which one would you choose? Yeah, just to see how they And you said respond. the die young one, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Like you could die tomorrow is another way of doing it if they're not 25, but Right. Like, or but die I've in re- like a month. Yeah, but I've actually realized it uh recently that I need to rephrase the way I kind of describe it. So I mm. generally have described it very similar to what we've just discussed right here and then I pose the question to them. But the the context um, and the type of society is completely different that we're living in now. So it's it's very easy for yeah. somebody to say, oh, well, I'll just live with my family to the end of my days. And that's, you know, that's all. I'm cool with that. Yeah. So instead, I think um, the yeah. early death needs to be tied to something of their highest ambition or their highest um, reward, life reward. So if somebody wants to get in the NBA, it's like either you go in the NBA and you have like you win the finals and then you fucking die or you never get into the NBA. So it needs to be kind of framed in that sort of context. Oh, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. So it has to be attached to a deep value of theirs, yeah, personal value that they're striving for. And we'll say, yeah, so in, in two years you'll hit it, but then you'll die. So you'll die in two years or you'll die shortly thereafter. At right, some point, basically. and you won't live until eighty. Or, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. That's interesting. So I haven't, I, like that. I haven't um, rephrased the question in that manner uh, to a new party yet. So I'm going to start. So what would that, that look like for you? Though? Like, what would be the greatest achievement that might be worthy of dying for? <laughs> the greatest value that might be worth. Yeah, that's a that's a see. That's part of the ref, the reflection contemplation I've been having. Yeah. And so you know. Previously, I was like, you know, hey, I want to hit a certain level from a business standpoint, um, you know, be wealthy and very influential uh, in the manner that fits, you know, my imaginary ideal. But I've kind of been changing that and kind of breaking that down and saying, what is it that I truly want? So I don't know yet, actually. Um, I definitely know that it, it's um, a lot of it is about re- the people relationships. That's kind of one of the longest things that you can foster and grow. Um, aside that, something that's internal. So you know, that's obviously starts with my family. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I'm I'm in the middle of thinking all of that out. So I don't know. Yeah. So I mean, Achilles. In, remember, in the novel or in the the story, uh, in the epic poem, he chooses at the beginning to pursue the second fate, to pursue just living with, finding a wife in Pythia, um, living with his father or, you know, seeing his father grow old and die and letting his father see him and just having a family, farming the land, you know, overseeing his people and just living a good life and dying. That's the choice he initially makes. Right. And, um, you know, in the beginning, well, I was under the impression he, he like default chose the early death. Like that wasn't even a decision for him. And then when he was wronged, then he was like, now I'm going to choose the second route. Well, so before the Iliad, the, the, the idea was that he was there for that, you know, uh, that the first fate, or at least the first, first fate would have 
happened for him, yes. But he decided against that, and that's how the that's book one of the Iliad is his deciding against that and instead choosing, and there's a whole deliberative process that he goes through in the Iliad, and he chooses to abscond from the fighting, to go away from the fighting, to leave it and say, Hey, my life is worthwhile. I want to, and he says that explicitly, like my life is a value to me. I don't want to lose it arbitrarily and for no reason. And you Agamemnon who took away my prize shows that maybe even if I die for this war, I won't get the first fate because you could just take away all my glory, right? You could just take it away arbitrarily. And and that's kind of his feeling, I think. And then he, uh, so he chooses the second one. He's like, forget it. And no amount of stuff that Agamemnon, you know, when the Greeks start failing in the war and they start losing the war, Agamemnon's like, oh, give him everything he wants, right? Like, give him all the glory, give him all the fame, give him all the women, everything he said, you know, why he left in the first place. And Achilles turns all of that down, all of it, including even protecting and fighting for his brothers in arms, right? Which is a no-no in today's world. We, You have to fight for your brothers in arms. That's the only reason that we hear uh, many soldiers today fight is for the, the man next to them. And so Achilles says no explicitly to that and to all the other values. So it's a kind of, um, you know, again, he's, he's rejecting all of the values that he lived, that he had been living for previously. And now he's going to be living for something else. Um, now, of course, in Homer's view and in the Greek view, this is where, wherein lies the tragedy for him because he is um, faded. But, you know, the contemplation part, you're talking about, I think is really important because you could, you know, if you're trying to think about it for yourself, are you fine with just the quiet life? And do you have to be renowned? Right. Is that an important value? How important, if it is, how important is it? You know? And then I think another way of thinking about it is how death frames the importance of life. You know, the fact that you are going to die and you know, that, that frames these values um, you know, I think I used this example in the our discussion, but Ayn Rand has this, the philosopher Ayn Rand has this really interesting analogy of an indestructible immortal robot. And an indestructible in, in, immortal robot needs nothing, right? It doesn't need values because it can't die. So it doesn't need love. It doesn't need um, food because he can't die. It doesn't need um, friendship. It doesn't need to exercise. It doesn't need to work, right? Because it doesn't. So none of the things that are values to us. It doesn't need to plant crops and see them. All the processes that go involved in that in, in making those values happen. An immortal, immortal, indestructible robot doesn't need that. And the gods in Homer's Iliad are kind of like that. The humans, the mortals, do have those values, and they do need it. And so they're. You know, we as mortals are put in a really weird, you know, view is that we we have a kind of godlike ability in our consciousness, but we are we know we're going to die. And I think what we learn in the Iliad, or one of the things we can learn, is the the idea of valuing and the timelessness that you're saying and finding those deep values and what they really are. Um, and and you know, because you're because your life is finite. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're right. Death is what makes life valuable. And then so, so because life is valuable, then since it's your own life, what are the actions that you can take to increase that value to yourself as you're progressing through the 
while the you're journey alive. of life. Yeah. Because it's, because it's valid because it's, um, it's framed by it's going to end. So you only have so many, there's actually in the movie, Troy, there's actually a line I like with the Brad Pitt movie. Um, and I like it so much that I don't remember it exactly, <laughs> but it's basically, you know, he, he basically says the, the gods envy us because we're only going to be here once. This is the last time this moment is, will, will fade away. We will never be here again. The Greek gods are repeating life over and over again. They just see, you know, heroes in the past and they're there. And then, you know, there's a kind of um, lethargy and they don't care that much. Uh, because again, it's just kind of a game for them. But for the mortals, it's not a game. Like it's very serious. It's life and death. It's life and death. <laughs> and a lot of this seems obvious, you know, when we point it out. But it's so, I think, important to kind of grasp these these fundamental truths about our existence. So, you know, and I think that's what you, what you might be saying about the timeless timelessness. What's really timeless about it? Why? Every culture, even Christian cultures, you know, um, uh, reasoned cultures of the you know 16th, 17th, 18th century, the age, or like the 18th century, the age of reason, 19th century, like they all return and love the Iliad for because it has that timeless and others in it, timeless value and perspective. Yeah, you know, when I was reading through it myself, I didn't really. Um, I didn't really catch on to so much of the life and death aspects of it. But, you know, after we've all got together as a group and discussions with you, it really is um, a book that highlights the the importance of life and the importance of death and, you know, the meaning of life, but also what is the meaning of death and what type of death that you have and how that affects your life and, and then the life of all the people around you, given that this is a story of war and there's people dying left and right uh, in in the book. It's um, I can it's obvious why it's so um, reviewed and gone back to and against stood the test of time. Yeah. So, what's your favorite part of the Iliad? So, my favorite part is um, Diomedes mm. uh, when he. Uh, basically goes on a rampage. I didn't even know he existed um, <laughs> prior to reading this. I had a I, I had a general idea of the Iliad. I knew it was the Trojan War. I knew it was the Greeks and the Trojans. I knew how it started. I knew how it ended. Uh, I knew Achilles was in there, and I knew uh, Hector was in there, but I didn't know about Diomedes. Um, but I really enjoyed him because he number one he's a badass warrior which is revered in that realm um he um he he almost like a kind of like an almost never gives up kind of mentality he has mm -hmm. a a mission he's going to do whatever he has to do to you know go after it in the early part of the book he's empowered by uh, a goddess out of everyone in the entire army you know he's kind of chosen to give additional um powers like i said and um he even injures a god you know Ares. he injures Ares, 
and um, injures Aphrodite. And that's pretty amazing for a mortal to do. Mm-hmm. And then I, I recall when, um, when later on in the book, when the convoy goes to Achilles and they're like, dude, we need you back. We, we, we're losing this war. We need you to come fight. And Achilles is like, nah, you're on your own. Well, when they get back, you know, Diomedes is like, well, yeah. whatever. We, we're going to still fight anyway, even despite Achilles. Yeah. And, basically the perspective of everybody else and it even describes it in the book is when they find out Achilles is not happening there's like silence <laughs> and basically everyone takes that as now we're defeated our yeah. only saving grace was Achilles and in that moment he was like you know we're still gonna fight regardless yeah um so I kind of appreciate that and I like that aspect of his personality plus he has not only the heroics that I've already described, but you know, after that, that following night, he works with Odysseus and they kind of do a sneak attack in the night and they yeah. have a really, you know, huge impact before the, the, the battle the next day. And so he just has, he's a true mortal that has hmm. huge impact. Whereas Achilles is, you know, godlike and, and um, a son of a, a goddess, and is, yeah, I don't, I can't food. remember Diomedes's um, parents, his parentage. Um, do you remember? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, actually, I'm forgetting. So, um, so Diomedes was king of the Greek city Argos. He was one of the suitors of Helen, um, as all of them were. Yeah, so yeah, I think he, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. His parents are Tydeus and Dip, Dipple. I don't know if they're gods though. I don't think they're gods. Um, so that's, I didn't think about that. That's an interesting um, connection that he is stressed as a, a mortal character, not as like Achilles. So there are like, there's Trojans like Sarpedon or Paris or Hector, or, um, um, not Paris, but like Sarpedon, whose mother is Aphrodite. Um, and I believe it's Aphrodite. Right. I thought he was the son of Zeus, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm. Oh wrong. You, no, you're right. Yeah, all the parents are. There's a, the, the gods her. and the goddesses got around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few of their children running. Oh, Zeus and Europa. Yeah. So, um, so Sarpedon has a. No, I was thinking of. Um, oh man, Aeneas. I think Aeneas' parents. They are. Um, and Chai. No, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, oh, it's, yeah, Aphrodite. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so Aeneas is who I was thinking of. But anyway, the point is that there are, within the tro- within the mortals, there are these mixed mortals, right? That they're mortal, but they have parents who are immortal, like Achilles, Aeneas, Sarpedon. There are some, but Diomedes is not. So that's an interesting, and he's not the only one who's, who's not. Um, you know, I don't know who Odysseus's mother is. His father, Peleus, I believe. I don't remember his mother. So I think he might be a mortal, though. He's, he's a normal mortal. But um, it's very hard to keep track of all the parents. There's so many parents. Sure. I have not memorized all of them. But the point I'm trying to make is that what you said is, is interesting. Diomedes is given this great heroic um, moment. He's a great fighter, but he is a mortal. He is a mortal, not immortal. He is a normal mortal man, just also great and a, and a great fighter. Um, also 
so one thing that you're pointing out, maybe we can kind of um, end around here that I think is a really good thing to um, think about with this story is one of the things that makes it early literature and early gr- and great literature and Western literature is that the characters are highly differentiated, that they're individuals with their own values, their own way of thinking. They're not kind of cardboard cutouts of just generic traits. So Diomedes has complexities, right? He's he um, he's shown as taunting while he's fighting. Sometimes he's he gloats over a kill. He um, finds a man, Glaucus, I believe, that he uh, has lineage with, and he's honorable and he doesn't harm him. Although he gives him not as good of a trade when they trade gifts as Glaucus, the Trojan gives to Diomedes, the Greek, right? Like Diomedes comes away a lot better than that. Um, like you said, he's brave uh, all the time. He, he's positive. He's optimistic and he's, he believes in his own abilities and the abilities of the Greeks. And so he, he has these complex views. And I think you see this with Odysseus, with Aeneas, with Hector, with Sarpedon, they they're thinking, they're talking, they're speaking with values, and they have their own individual values. And I think with what we the little literature we have before this, you don't see that as much. And even the, a lot of the literature around this time that we know of, you don't see that as much. And that's one of the reasons why this is such a important, um, you know, canonical work is that all literature has that element after that, or or any good literature has the element where each of the characters have their own set of, they're individuals, right? They're, they're people in a sense. Diomedes is his own person who has his own views. He's not just a, a version of Achilles. You're right. I didn't really think about that. I guess that's something that we take for granted now with everything that we're inundated with, yeah. but with how old this is, I didn't really consider, um, you know, the diversity of characters, the character uh, nature itself uh, within the, the characters in the plot. I didn't really think about that. Um, and something I'd mentioned, too, is that's been interesting in reading uh, the Iliad and, and partaking in this uh, with you and in the group. And you had kind of mentioned this uh, briefly in one of our conversations, but just kind of seeing the influences of these works in today's society, but also throughout history. So, mm. you know, I'm, I've been, I never really was looking for stuff that had to do with Greeks or Achilles or anything of that nature. But now I've been starting to kind of notice little mm-hmm. pieces here and there. And you've mentioned there's like echoes uh, in, throughout history. They might be in art and those type of things. So for instance, the other day, um, I saw a truck where they were Ajax plumbing. I found <laughs> that quite quite interesting that they yeah. chose Ajax, and it made me ponder, like, why did they choose Ajax um, for their company name, Ajax Plumbing? And, yeah. You know. So there's little bits like that, and as we go and learn more and we read more, we'll be able to see those, and then we'll be able to see just these different connections that were – in plain sight, but hidden to us just due to our lack of knowledge or experience. So I find that to be interesting as well. Yeah, no, I definitely think the Greeks are all over the, the names of the Greeks, their influence. 
Um, we have something in the Literary Canon Club called Art Inspired by the Iliad, and we, we're going to do this with every book. So there's art in painting, music, um, poetry, novels, in every art form, sculptures that are inspired by these works, all the way from ancient to modern to today. Uh, we see this in, not just in movies like Troy, which are explicitly about it, but that's part of it. Like we're still telling that story, like the 2004 movie made by the Game of Thrones, one of the one of the David Thrones producers. Uh, I can't remember if it's David Benioff or whatever the other guy, but but anyway, um, Dan and David. I don't remember which one it was, but so that there's echoes to it, but also just yeah, there's like the names and then the themes, like the ideas of. Um, rejecting, you know, like, like to some degree, you can think Achilles shrugs, right? <laughs> so you have Atlas shrug by Ayn Rand, and you could say Achilles shrug. Like he's a, a, a now, of course, he's not a John Galt on any level, but it, just the idea that rejecting all the basic norms and ethos of your society that you grew up with, I mean, that's something that Achilles does. And we see that quite commonly in literature where some outsider is saying no to everything in their society. I'm saying this is not right and I'm done with it. And then, you know, what happens to them or what, you know, it's, it's, that's kind of an interesting story. So, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. And there's something important about drawing that out. So, okay. Any last thoughts on the Iliad and then we'll close out here. No, it was an enjoyable read. You know, it's definitely different than, novels that I've read in the past and um, it helps that I was able to read this and have discussions with you and be a part of the group just to kind of bounce some ideas off and help revelations occur that might not have occurred or help them occur uh, a little bit more hastily um, than me trying to find this information or, or come to the realizations on my own. Um, it's definitely a book that I would like to revisit down the road. And, um, you know, if it, if it's kind of like when you finish a, a great movie that kind of has you thinking about it, you know, later that day or like a few weeks later, like Ex Machina is an example of a mm. movie that the ending I was thinking about, you know, for a while. <laughs> Um, yeah, the Iliad is, is an example of that. And, um, well, hopefully ex machina is an example of the Iliad doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Iliad probably doesn't, hopefully on a grander scale. Yes. Well, I'm giving my, uh, I know, I'm just kidding. my microcosm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the Iliad is something that I've pondered about, been thinking about. I like, you know, just having this conversation with you to kind of bounce it around and, um, you know, in trying to incorporate more of those type of stories uh, mm -hmm. in my own life, I think is important. And so, yeah, I recommend people to read it. All right. Well, thank you very much. And um, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Welcome to another Iliad. We're going to be doing three of the Iliad. Um, I have Heather Schwartz. Now you said, um, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing your last name because I just realized yes. I say it with a heavy T. I didn't yes. realize I said it with such a heavy T. So it's, yes, it's said with a T. <laughs> so it is said with a T, Schwartz. but it's spelled with a Z. So it's uh, spelled Schwartz, but it's yes. uh, pronounced Schwartz. So that's why I thought it was Heather Schwartz. But yeah. okay. 
So we have Heather <laughs> Schwartz. Uh, she's part of the Literary Canon Club, along with Molly and Marco, our other guests for this episode. And um, we are going to be doing little mini episodes on the Iliad because we just finished it. And um, Heather, this was your first time reading the Iliad, or it's uh, uh, in yes that I remember anyway. Yes, yeah, and definitely your first time with Evie Reuse, which yes. um, was I, I had read it before, but only once. But I've read mostly um, verse translations. Now you have read the Odyssey, and you said before this. Did you read a verse translation of the Odyssey, the Fagels? Yes. And I think, I don't know if it was the Fagels, but I think okay. I read excerpts from the verse translation. So I don't even think I've read the whole thing before. Oh, the Odyssey. Okay. So, Odyssey. so yeah. this is, so we're actually, just so everybody knows, we're actually in the process of reading the, the Odyssey in the recording of this right now. Um, so this is your first official all the way through of the Odyssey. So that's really cool. That's right. Yeah, that's um, great. So that, that'll be interesting. So I think with you, first impressions is helpful. You know, with the Iliad, it's an intimidating book. A lot of people, everybody's heard about it, but very few people, very few people actually read it all the way through. Um, and so it's an accomplishment, I think. Um, it's something to be proud of. But I was just curious, your first impressions in reading this challenging epic poem. Um. Well, I really liked the translation. I thought it was very easy to read. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was so much fighting. <laughs> yeah, like I know that I've picked it up before and probably not finished it, and that's probably why. Like even in movies, I'm not one to really pay yeah. any attention to the fight scenes, and this is full of it. Um, well, it's not normal I, fighting, right? It's no, not, not like normal. kung fu TV fighting where people kick each other, hit each other with a bar over the head or a bat and they're okay. This no. is like one hit brutal kill through the eye, the groin, the throat, the teeth breaking out of the back yes. of your neck, like really gross. So when you say fighting, we're talking brutal, gruesome, realistic, you know, slaughter, scenes. slaughter <laughs> scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so keep going. I just wanted, so people, do, it's not like, you know, when Jackie Chan is like kicking people, it's like, that's fighting, but it's not the same thing, right? They, they, yeah. They're down and they'll probably get back up and they're okay. Yes. And along with the fighting, there was, you know, such attention to like the individual who was dying and what their story was. Mm -hmm. That was, is so different from what we see in a normal fight scene that we're used to. It's, it's very, like, I, I remember watching movies where somebody would die and, and having the reaction, like, like that was a person, like, who was that? This random mm. person that, you know, Johnny Depp just shot or whatever it was. Johnny Depp. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, but in this book, it's like, you get every single person, you get some meaning of their lives. Like who were they? Who were their parents? What, you know, what was their life about kind of thing with every yeah. single scene, which is really different. And, and good. I like that. So you, you liked that. But when you yeah. first, you said when you had picked up excerpts in the past, that had kind of turned you off. Yes. That part of yes. it. Yes. Just literally, you know, the sword going through the yeah. guy's neck and like just so much description is brains falling out on the ground. Like, <laughs> you know, that yeah. just isn't <laughs> something that I want to sit and read necessarily. But, um, well, since we have, um, technically this, this show will have, me, Marco, Heather, Molly. So two guys, two girls. 
Um, and I'm curious, I've already asked this of Molly and I'll ask this of you. I won't tell you her answer. Do you think being a female has any effect on that in terms of your, your relationship to the fighting? Well, it must, because obviously there are people in the world who enjoy these fight scenes and it sure isn't me. So maybe that's because I'm a female. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. Cause I have heard some, like there's a, a, a professor that I've listened to a lecture, a female, Elizabeth Vandiver, she prefers the Iliad, which is unusual to the, and she's an expert on both. And usually if they are, they have a preference and often it's, you know, uh, the Odyssey, but she prefers the Iliad. So I don't know if it's a, a male female thing or if there's something else going on, but I was just curious if being, you know, um, if there was maybe something culturally or whatever that, yeah. cause I, I'll be honest. I love the fighting. It's awesome. Okay. I love band of brothers. I love civil war, you know, movies. I, there's just something about, you know, obviously the brutality of it is horrifying, but there's just something where I, you know, my father was in Vietnam and I kind of think about how would I, you know, deal with war if I was ever, you know, uh, I think I might be a little old now, but you know, when I was, when I was 18, I had to sign the draft card, um, you know, cause I might, you know, so I, it's always on my mind. It's always yeah. been on my, how would I deal in war? And I'm just curious well, if there's like a difference in interacting with it, with the text. Sure. Um, well, I mean, for one thing, I would say that there is a lot more going on than just the war. Yeah. So, you know, that, yeah. that keeps your attention, but I also, it's like a different way of looking at war. Like you shared a poem with the group that was sort of contrasting the Iliad with like a modern person who's involved in a war. Mm -hmm. um, and like the different way that they, it seems so bleak for them. You know what I mean? Whereas in the Iliad, when they're fighting, like it's, there's so much meaning in what they're doing. Like everything that they do is somehow attached to, their own honor or, you know, mm. their personal, what they're trying to accomplish with their, with their life. Like it's so meaningful for every character. Whereas like with war and with war stories, now you get the sense that it's like big, like world powers and it's not personal. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So I found that really different about this book and it made it easier. It made it maybe possible for me to read and enjoy because it, it was, like you didn't get the sense that you were watching this meaningless battle that was gory and for no reason other than gore. Like you got the sense that this is something meaningful that these characters are doing. Yeah. No. So I think um, the reason I always bring up like band of brothers and the Pacific is because I think for me anyway, in, in terms of modern movies and shows, those do similar things where okay. you really um, you you know, like it's, it's one of those things where it's almost like game of Thrones where you think this one character is the, the main character, you get to know him, you love him. And then he dies very early or something. Right. right. And there's a real pathos to seeing his life, his home life, you know, the woman he loves, the, the things that he does and things like that. And you see that, you know, he dies very, and there, there's a, it's very similar to it. To me, that, that movie has, or that show or those shows and saving private Ryan, which is kind of the predecessor has that kind of feel to the war where it's, it, it shows the futility of death and, and of war in a sense where it's like these people are dying, which is exactly, I think in the Trojan war or in the, the Iliad with the Trojan war, that's part of it is that you have these, you know, the best, um, you know, youth of that generation was all slaughtered on both sides. Yeah. 
many right. of them, like the best of the best, the Achilles, the, um, I think Diomedes survives with the Sarpedons, Hector, right? These Ajaxes. great, a, the Ajaxes. Yeah. yeah. Although Ajax was after the Iliad when he dies, right. actually. Yes, that's, I just read the part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. You read that in the Odyssey. I read that in the Odyssey. Yeah. 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 So, so um, he, his was, but he does die, you know, in a, in a sense because of the ethos of the Iliad, because uh, he commits suicide after the war because he doesn't get the armor. But anyway, so I was just trying to, I just think that um, you're right. And I, it's one of the things that I love about the Iliad is um, the idea that you get a sense of these characters, even small, minor characters. Every death, you know, I think has at least a line about what they were before they died. So a lot of people who read this think that, oh, hey, you know, this person, it's it just like, oh, this is brutal. And they, you know, today we read this and we, that's what we remember often. But if you take a closer look for a moment, you'll see that Homer at least puts a line Often He puts many sentences, a paragraph, or even a whole page, depending on the greatness of that character or, you know, a whole book, um, you know, like Patroclus gets, gets a couple books or whatever, a couple chapters. Right. So anyway, I, I just think that that's a very good point that people should remember about the Iliad, that that gets to the theme of what Homer's trying to accomplish in, in building that. So, yeah. So why do you think it's so gory? Like, why did he add all of the details of, was that just cultural or? Yeah, I think that's a good question. For me, it would. So one of the things that happens in the Iliad is that um, there are very few what's called walking wounds. So you can actually like look up a tally, like scholars have tallied this all up. Most people in the Iliad, if they get um, hit, die. There are very few people who, there, there are some minor wounds, but they're, I'm sorry, I said it wrong earlier. There are a few minor wounds or you're dead. There's nothing in between. So there's no amputations. Right. There's no long lingering deaths. You're either instantly killed brutally or, you know, whatever, like it goes through your throat and you're gone. Uh, goes yeah. through your skull, whatever, right? the really bad right. stuff, and you're dead right away. Or you get a minor walking wound and you're back in the action in a couple hours or a day or something. And right. that's it. And one of the reasons, now you got to the brutality, and I'm going to get to that in a second, but one of the reasons I think that happens is Homer's trying to stress death, and this is a kind of essentialized, so he's he's actually purposefully not including something like that because that would be a distraction. To, to artistically, I think that would be a distraction from the focus on death that, oh, there are these types of lingering things. No, like in his world, what he's trying to show is it's it's about death because he focuses on mortality and immortality and the struggle between, you know, how does a mortal have immortality? Right. And it's through Kleos or, or you know, people right. talking about you. And that's the only way. The paradox is that you have to take other people's lives to do that. And, you, you know, in Achilles' case, you definitely have to die. So right. it's an interesting paradox to, ha to have the, um, you know, the walking wounds, I think, would, or to get the, the lingering deaths would kind of get in the way of that focus. Yeah, the brutality part, I think, has a lot to do with um, verisimilitude. Just he is trying to get to the truth of the matter. And mm -hmm. this is, you know, he's seen war. And so... You know, although he's evading or, or get, he's cutting out these these other parts of it, he does want to show that the death is horribly brutal. 
Right. And it's not like a Hollywood death where you shoot someone and they go, ah, right. And they like go like that and their, their arms stretch out and it's like, they do a pirouette and they fall down. I mean, this is real. Uh, and, and I think that I, and that's what I imagine is he is having some realism in there. That's okay. my guess. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on it? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I would think for realism and it does seem to be, it seems to be this idea that like these people are, are people, they're individuals, they have lives and like, look what happens to them. And it's, it's like a contrast of like, almost like it makes you think why, like, why are they doing this? Why are they going out to, you know, why are they sending all their youth to this place or whatever to, for this to happen to them? And I think um, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just raises the question of like, why would they, and, and, you know, Achilles explains why he's doing it pretty well. And so you do get an understanding of that, but you also really understand why he has to think a lot about why he's here. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, he questions it. Right. Cause he knows yeah. he's going to, but you're right. Like I think, the the brutality aspect that's a good point that it it has it stresses that this is purely war it's not like they're building a great parthenon and a boulder falls on somebody and yeah. you know which is horrible and they're dying but they're trying to build something and they they're it's like they're they're just you know and i think um they're just uh, conquering and i think the also the brilliance of homer is that he doesn't make it about trade Right. It's not like like in yeah. in realist historians today will say that the Trojan War was really about trade routes and they're trying to conquer. And that's probably true. Right. They're trying to conquer the Mediterranean. So right. Achaeans go to the Trojans and Trojans are the big, you know, the best on this side of the Mediterranean. They're the best on the other. They want to conquer to have all the trade routes to themselves. That makes perfect sense in history. Homer's brilliance is that he makes it about the what we would think of as the silliest reason, but which is uh, because Paris um, uh, abducted yeah. Helen from Menelaus and that put them and but what that like does that little minor thing is it it makes it forces you to think about well why do we go to war, mm-hmm. right? Because it seems like trade routes to to us historically make a kind of sense because we need that to survive and flourish. And, you know, during these primitive times that might be important or that is important for your civilization to grow and to get, you know, pass, pass on, I guess your, your mm-hmm. more colonies and so on. Right. But in this war, although they are going to get riches from it, there's a question of, well, it started with this woman that, that you know, that, that the most beautiful woman in the world that was kidnapped all these men for 10 years are being brutally butchered because yeah. of really because of that. And, you know, I think it's brilliant that Homer stressed that versus all these other things, although there's other motivations for, for the people, <clears throat> excuse me, but I just, I, I think that that's an important uh, aspect and, and the brutality emphasizes, Hey, what's going on with, um, with this war killing right. these great men you know, killing the, the flourishing youth, the, the budding youth of this whole generation. And that goes into the Odyssey, by the way, which we'll right. see, we see some of the effects of that in the Odyssey, I think. Right. But that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. So, okay. Do you think that, sorry, do you think that Homer thought that that was enough of a reason? Like, do you think that Homer 
Um, that what was enough of a reason? That you know that instead of being about resources, it was about like personal oh. glory and Helen and all of that stuff. I think that reveals his artistry. Yeah, right. That I'm sure he's aware he's of showing. Trade. Yeah, right. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm sure he's aware of trade routes and the importance right. of trade routes. I mean, sure. it's the eighth century. You know, he's um, getting. You know, we know historically, for instance, writing uh, is coming from other places during his time. He's one of the first people to really be writing down things in general uh, with like whatever the cuneiform B or whatever it's called. <laughs> um, and I can't I can't remember the, the name. But anyway, yeah. so he is aware of these other motivations. But I think he wants to stress that this is the ethos of war. This is why men fight at the end of the day. Right. Just like today we say. The reason men fight at the end of the day is their brothers. They're a band of brothers. They fight for the men next to them. Um, that's you know that that's one thing. Although I like the band of brothers, and um, because actually they they do talk about the moral part of that war, which is unusual in history. A lot of wars are not fought for that kind of moral reason, um, unless it's religious. I guess you can say it's yeah. moral reason, but. Yeah, so my, my I guess my overall point is that he, Homer is really good at stressing what he's trying to stress, which is they their motivations are are honor and glory. That's why what why they're there. But it all started with a dishonorable thing, the abduction of Helen. And yet, look at how brutal it is and how monstrous this thing is. Right. And every time he kills somebody, it just reinforces that man. This is not. This is you know like why are we doing this? Like these guys could be at home singing and dancing and inventing and, you know, producing something and building caring a house. For their fathers, like I said. Yeah, exactly. Caring for their fathers. Exactly. <laughs> right. So I think that's a good, a good point. Yeah. Right. Part of it. Now in your first reading, you know, the fighting. So we've talked a lot about the fighting and the death and the brutality, which is not even your favorite part <laughs> personally for you. <laughs> right. What was a fa- what was something that you gained out of it or really enjoyed um, outside of that or that you know because that was a surprise for you but something that was just maybe pleasurable to read and and a part um, of it? I I I enjoyed reading about <laughs> um, Hera and Zeus actually <laughs> I really liked their like relationship and the way that mm. she would get her way and all of the gods really the way that they sort of have this leader Zeus who gets Mm -hmm. what he wants because he's the strongest, but all of the others have their own ways of, you know, getting what they need as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether it's by tricking Zeus or just asking permission later (laughs) or whatever their method is of, uh, or sleeping with him and making him go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, sure. and making him fall asleep after sex, right? And that yeah. worked for him, and that was a major moment. Um, right. Zeus goes, you know, Zeus turns away, and and that's when, and th- is that when Patroclus goes into war, or something happens? I can't, I'm r- blanking. Some major event happens where the Greeks start. No, the Greeks start to win for a short amount of time. Yeah. Yes, that had to happen because, and it, and I don't know if Zeus really cared that much. It's just that he mm. had promised. You know, yes. I don't get the I don't get the impression that Zeus. Well, and I don't think he did. He, like, um, what's uh, Achilles' mother's name? Thetis. Thetis or Thetis. Thetis yeah. yeah, she had to really argue with him and mm. convince him to yeah. help the Trojans. But then once he decided, like that was a solid decision. It was, <laughs> you know, he 
he the others then had to uh, resort to trickery or yeah. sneaking in order to get what they wanted. So, so and, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I mean, the gods in the Iliad are very interesting. A lot of people... So I know there, there's like the seculars who try to ignore the gods in the Iliad, in the Iliad which I think is a mistake. Because um, ma- they play a major role. And you know, a major and direct role in the Iliad. More than you're reading the Odyssey, you probably have noticed... They don't play. I mean, they're in there and they're important, but they're not quite manipulating or, or taking people out of the Poseidon. battle. What's that? Except for Poseidon, right? Well, okay, Poseidon. we'll talk about. Yeah, so he is doing something, and, and like I said, I don't think they're involved in it. But I mean, that they're not involved in the Odyssey. They are, but I guess what I'm looking at is with the Iliad. When you're looking at their family dynamics, they're yelling at each other. They're making fun of each other. They're ridicule each other. They're they're cheating on each other they're doing and there's and there's they're arguing with each other they're calling each other a cow or something right like it's just a weird (laughs) weird stuff's going on all the time and then they're interfering on a regular basis by going into the battle specifically but also um you know and even fighting each other at some points like with athena and and, um and aries and then also um you know taking Taking Paris away is the famous example, like getting him off the battlefield and they're, they're interacting with them. So I just think that they have a, a d- very direct role in the Iliad and they have somewhat of a more indirect role in the Odyssey. But anyway, um, I think their dynamic is really interesting. It's, it's a very good point to think about when you're reading the Iliad is what role do they play and why are they, why is Homer writing so much about them? There's whole sections that just focus on the gods That's and, right. and their, their whole like up on Mount Olympus, which you yeah. don't really get as much in the, the Odyssey. It's, it's like, you know, it's like he takes the camera and he goes into Mount Olympus and, you know, hangs out with them yeah. a little bit. Yeah, that's right. That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. And their dynamic is weird, right? <laughs> like it's very childish. And um, some people have called it like a, a 70s sitcom type feel <laughs> and okay. you know like just just like silly humor they're kind of buffoons almost right. like they come across as kind of buffoonish in the way that they behave mm-hmm. now we kind of talked about this in the club but i was just curious if you remember any of that if you had any new thoughts why do you think homer has them drawn like that yeah that's a good question and it is um, like I think you pointed out then the the question of like we see them and they seem to be acting so much, but like are they really influencing anything? Mm. Is anything really any different than it would be if they weren't involved? And it's hard to hard to know. And I've been thinking about that as I read the Odyssey too. I don't know how much you want to talk about the Odyssey, so oh I yeah, whatever you want. Okay. Yeah. Well, so in the Odyssey in the beginning, um, Telemachus is really young and it seems like he doesn't he has this idea that he's going to go if go and find his father and then get rid of the suitors but it seems like he couldn't really pull that off on his own Hmm. and so athena she does some of it for him like she gets the ship ready for him and like she goes and finds the men for him and then there's the question of like would he have been able to do that if she didn't but you don't have so much of that question in the iliad i i do think there's not as much direct like okay, if this God hadn't intervened, maybe with the exception of the Paris thing, <laughs> maybe yeah, Paris. Would have died. That's an obvious one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about the motivating factor that it 
you know, they say, or for instance, when somebody shoots at Menelaus, when they break the, 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 they were going to fight Paris and Menelaus were going to fight Paris starts losing, um, his mother, uh, Venus, Aphrodite takes him away and Menelaus is furious. Now the two armies don't know what to do. One of Trojan armies are, you know, the Trojan soldiers are inspired by a nefarious God. I don't remember which one it was, maybe Artemis or Athena or something to shoot at Menelaus. And he hits him in the belt belt buckle, which apparently is very heavily armored because it didn't kill him. (laughs) And so he, um, so there, there is, there are a lot, I think there are quite a few of those moments where Homer stresses um, one where either the God was looking out for them. So like a spear just misses and maybe gets the guy next to you. Right. So it's like, you're, you're, you're going here, spear misses you, but it kills the guy right next to you. That's one thing. And so it's like Athena moved with the air, the, yeah, the, the spear. But that's the kind of thing that happens in real life. And you, you make up an explanation for it after, right? So the arrow missed him. Okay. Was that because Athena moved him or moved it? Or did the arrow just miss him? Yeah. Right. I, I felt like there was more of that. No, I think you're right. I think that's a big part of it is that the arrow um, is that that's kind of maybe Homer rationalizing with right. or, or personifying the mystical or mystifying feeling of why not me or why did this not kill me, which happens, right. a, you know, I've never been in war, but a lot of combat veterans have said that type of thing, right? Sure. Where it's like a bullet went right next to me and got somebody else. And why did I survive this type of thing? Yeah. yeah so I think there's, there's that, but, um, but he does it a lot. So it's it. You're right. I think it reveals that. But you, I don't know if you can. I mean, when you're in a piece of literature, you should try to integrate things, and he does that all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely important to him that the gods are relevant in this battle, and the gods are on. There's you know gods in Olympus, and they're both you know Trojans and uh, 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 Greeks are praying to the same gods. Right. And, and so there's like this whole thing. It's like, which prayer works and why does it happen? And, you know, why do they choose this person versus that person? You know, And there's the discussion at the end between Achilles and um, Paris and Hector's father, Priam. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Where they talk about, I I think it's that conversation where they talk about, you know, the gods, sometimes they're on your side. Sometimes they're not. Yeah. (laughs) You just get what you get, you know? And uh, you're either blessed or you're not, and it could change. Yeah, you know, there's, there's that, and so it's, uh, yeah, like what does Homer expect from his gods, or what does he? Well, there's a there's definitely a word that we have attached to the Greek view of life, and if we think about, you know, metaphysics or the, our theory of the world, right? Like the theory of the kind of world that we live in, we get a very clear world in ancient Greek literature, starting with, starting with the Iliad in particular and in the Odyssey um, called fatalism. Right. Right. And it's the idea that your fate is just, you have these three fates, you know, they have the string, um, your birth, the middle of your life. And then you have one at the end that snips it and that's it. And I think it comes across very clear that that's, what like this is literature that presents fatalism very seriously as a very serious way of life that there's no escape. Even the gods can't really escape. Like that's what 
I think you see with the when you're looking at the gods in particular, Zeus will say, well, he's fated to die, but I can extend it a little bit. And, and how he dies is going to change maybe a little bit, but he's going to die at this basic point, right? And maybe right. I have a little bit of tug and pull with what I can do with the stuff of his death at some point. <laughs> so in that case, then Achilles having a choice about his two fates is really, like, really important. If, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think um, there are no characters in any literature. It's very rare for a character in literature, especially ancient Greek literature, and to have any knowledge of their fate. That is a, you know, you're a superhuman person, obviously, if already, if you know a fate and to have two fates and to be able to choose. So to me, the choice part is very important. The fact that he can choose yeah. is a big deal. And he chooses one and then, the you know, he chooses to go home at some point yeah. and then something and happens Patrick, and Patrick yeah. dies. Patrick yeah. dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, before right. we go, I do want to make sure we talk about your favorite scene. Sure. Cause I, you have a favorite scene and I, th- I wanted to know why it was your favorite scene. What is it? What's, what did you like about it so much? Sure. Well, I, my, so I think that my favorite part of the book was um, the description of the armor that Hephaestus makes for Achilles. Am I saying that correctly? Hephaestus? Um, there's so many pronunciations of these names that I've heard. Uh, sure. Hephaestus is okay. one I've heard. Um, okay. Hephaestus, Hephaestus, you know, All right. something I'll like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. His armor that he makes. Yeah. Um, I really liked it when I was reading it. And then, um, and then the poem that you posted that had to do with the armor. I, I don't know if they were two different poems. I think there were two separate ones. And, uh, Two separate poems in terms of the armor? uh, No, one poem about the armor. Mm. And then there was a separate poem that had to do with another war, I think. Oh, yeah. That one was Patrick Shaw. Right. Um, I saw a man this morning. So if anybody wants to go read that, that's that one. Um, Yeah, no, I think I'm thinking of You're thinking of another one. one. Yeah. Yes, because it's the one with the boy, right? And the boy is in this world where... Oh, he doesn't right. know about anything being good or whatever it is. Yeah, there's the, there's the uh, I don't know. I should have looked it up before. That's okay. <laughs> no, this, this is interesting. It's part of the fun of uh, a live recording. So sure. <laughs> there's, okay. So I definitely shared, I saw this, the, what, what I read at the end was I saw a man this morning um, by Patrick Shaw. That's the yeah. world war one poem. I did share Not another that. one about um, I'm looking it up now, but it's about, um, it's a modernist poem, actually, I think, about mm-hmm. maybe it's not pound, is it? But some about the like a reframing of the uh, of shield, the, armor. the shield of yes, Achilles of shield. in particular. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Is that the one yes. you're thinking of? It is. It okay. is. And it just the thing that I took away from it was because going into this, I kind of had a question about like, what are we looking for in these it's classic audit. books? What are we looking for, you know, in art generally? Yeah. And um, mm. like, why do we choose one thing over another thing? Like, what is it? And to me, like, um, that is a big part of the answer to the question for me, because so in the, in, and I'll try and recreate it as well as I can, but basically Hephaestus just makes this beautiful armor that describes or gives these scenes of, you know, exactly what Achilles wants, you know, what's in Achilles heart is on this armor. Right. And this, this is what his ideal is, you could say. Mm. Um, but in this other poem, now you've got this 
armor with these terrible scenes and with this boy now who grows up in a world where he doesn't know that men have men there is a world where men could have honor or he doesn't know you know well, that's that there could yeah. be a world like that like everything yeah. he knows is grim and is terrible and is you know yeah. just just horrible and um you know there's a lot of grimness in the Iliad too of course and and maybe it was very similar to the world that this boy actually knew where kids get knifed in the street or whatever you mm-hmm. know like there's similarities there and yet their art is so very different and what they what they're able to find in their world is so different because of their art because of the art that they have i don't know that's, that's kind a of beautiful way of th- i don't know if i ever made that connection actually like that so yeah so what you're if i understand what you're saying you're saying in the Iliad, the shield of Achilles. So part when we say when you say armor, you're you're focusing on the shield. The shield, right? sure. So yeah. he does yeah. make a whole suit of armor. There's a big the reason I say this is because in the Iliad and, and in ancient Greek, armoring scenes are actually really important. It's mm-hmm. you know, the, it's it's part of like becoming this warrior and they make a big deal of putting on the greaves and the west waistband and the belt and the plume hat with the horse hair and stuff. But the shield is like you're saying it's it's almost like architecture in the sense that it's practical. It does something very practical. It's very, but it ha- it has a painting of the cosmos in the Iliad and um, a scenes of domestic bliss in a sense, like mm-hmm. of towns in domestic bliss. But it also has these brutal, you know, siege uh, scenes, which is right. so. It's kind of like. Uh, an artistic when you read the description it's like an artistic description of the entirety of the entire theme of the iliad about the 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 cosmos the life and death situation mortality immortality because you're going you know going up into these uh immortal gods that are depicted and, and everything in between like it's all of existence as it's known to the ancient greeks or to homer right and that's what's in that's homer's or that's achilles world in a sense, represented in one image, uh, one complex, multiple of images, but in one shield that is actually protecting him as he goes into a godlike mode. Yeah. Yeah. It's going ahead of him, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's in front of him. It's protecting him. And there's a, I think when you read that, those sequences, when he goes back into war, there's a kind of terror that he invokes because of that. Because I mean, imagine seeing someone, you know, and, and, and Homer stresses this where he doesn't eat, they infuse him with ambrosia. He doesn't sleep. So he's yeah. like, he turns into a, a non-human for a, a few books of the, the Iliad. And then if you can imagine like this, he has this huge shield that's, in, you know, embossed with an embossed, whatever, with this image yeah. coming at you and slaughtering everybody around him. I mean, this is a, a very terrifying image in and of itself. Now, the, so if I understand you, so you're, you're talking about that scene and then the poem is the shield of Achilles by W H Auden, A U D E N. So I would um, go read that especially, you know, it's, it's a good poem in on its own face. Now you're reading you're saying something really interesting that I, I'm about to read it again and think about it. Cause I think you're right. Is that he has, there's this kid who is not, um, doesn't have certain values and, and the value, this Achilles world 
Because the, the poem by Auden is describing a new or depicting a new type of shield. Is that right? Yes. Are you correct? Right. Yeah. With barbed wire and with yeah. dead things and yeah. So it's like a World War One type vision. Yes. So it has mm-hmm. some visions of World War One and, and there's a lot of parallels World War One to the Trojan War. Um, and I think there's a lot of right par- comparisons, like the futility of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like why did we fight World War One of all things? World War II yeah. makes more sense, but you know, a, a duke got shot and we're all going to war. Like what? Um, so anyway, I think there's there's a lot of comparisons, but that's but your last conclusion, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that it's the art that it represents and it shows you the role of art in our lives. That this yeah. boy needs the shield. And that's why he becomes the type of person he becomes in the poem. And Achilles becomes the type of person who loses his best friend and dies in that's right. In that. That's really I think that's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I'm gonna use that. <laughs> I I if that, I'm gonna steal that. I'll say I'll, I'll say Heather Schwartz gave it to me, but um yeah, I never thought about that, but I think that's true. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, it was sort of the art within the art, you know, and then what do we get out of reading any of this literature into some, you know, one of those things is that we see another way of looking at the world in a, hopefully a better way, (laughs) you know, not that, not that everything about the Iliad is beautiful or whatever, but it is a way of, a way of looking at the world that things are meaningful and things are, personal, you know, as opposed to some other things that we read these days that yeah, that don't see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also it, um, it stresses death as a focal point of life that yes. without death, you don't have the meaning and the joy of life, which right. is what you see with the immortals that they don't really That's care right. about anything. Even their own yeah. sons, like you get a prick on your finger and like, I don't want to protect my son anymore. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. And that's because, and this is one of the goddesses gets a prick on her finger and she's like, I don't, you can have him. I'm done. I'm not going to protect him. <laughs> and it's like, really? Like you're immortal for one and you got a teeny little scratch and you're going to freak out. And I, 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 you know, I guess we can end here and I'll, you'll let you have any final thoughts um, as we go, if you have, if you'd like. But I think that's that, you know, as a practical view of life to remember that, you know, death is scary and sad and can be brutal sometimes in war, but it frames life and it gives meaning to life. Cause if we were immortal with no death, de- if death didn't exist and we couldn't be harmed, we wouldn't care about anything. That's right. right? We wouldn't care about our kids or our wife or our husband because what would, I mean, we're here forever. Like those things wouldn't matter to us. They would lose all, you know. And you wouldn't joy. have any motivation. Like the and gods have, yeah. you know, short It's just motivation. a play thing. Something yeah, to like exactly. kill the time. Oh, this, this yeah. fun war, just kill the time. You know, I'm going to sleep with this guy to try to distract them. But really at the end of the day, they're going right. to, you know, torch Troy anyway. So what does it matter? And the, yeah, so you get that, you get that sense. Okay. Any last, um, any last thoughts, Heather? Uh, no, I, I think. I, I had a lot of fun reading it. I really enjoyed it. This translation is fantastic. It was so <laughs> much easier to read than I thought it would be. Yeah. Um, so it's it was really good, and all the discussions were great. And like I said, the poetry, like I don't know, it just brings out, you know, the the goodness of of what's in there. So I enjoyed that a lot. I agree. Great. Well, thank all you right. so much. And well, I'll actually see you in a couple of days. So. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot.